0: Welcome to episode 33 of the Accessibility Craft Podcast, where we explore the art of creating accessible websites while trying out interesting craft beverages. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Equalize Digital, a WordPress accessibility company and the proud creators of the Accessibility Checker plugin. This episode is a recording of a June 2022 WordPress accessibility meetup where Carl Groves, a widely known and respected accessibility advocate, spoke about how to score accessibility in a manner that truly reflects how usable a product is for users with disabilities. WordPress Accessibility Meetups take place via Zoom webinars twice a month, and anyone can attend. For show notes, a full transcript, and additional information about meetups, go to accessibilitycraft.com slash 033. And now, on to the show.
1: Carl is Chief Innovation Officer at Level Access, and he has nearly two decades of experience doing IT consulting for the biggest companies in the world and the biggest agencies for the U.S. government. He has previously spoken previously spoken for us and has done a phenomenal job. And I am always, I always feel like I'm learning from him on social media and all those things. So we're excited to have him here. Um, I am going to stop sharing and I'm going to let Carl take over.
2: All right, thank you for the introduction. Uh, yeah. so, so let's see if I can figure out this multi-screen thing like we were talking about before. Most notably, where the heck the mouse is, is the, is the challenge that I always face. All right, <clears throat> so, um, so this is actually short. This is actually um, a pretty short uh, presentation. With my slides, th- there's inevitably gonna be somebody who says, can I, uh, can I get a copy of your slides? <clears throat> With all of my presentations, I actually don't have anything meaningful on the slides. As you'll see, usually it's a background image and then and then a couple of words, unless there's data being presented, and then that's a different story. Um, so that'll be um, that'll be uh, the situation with the slides. I'll, I'll explain any visuals that are necessary for understanding, or sometimes they're humorous as well. I try to I try to inject humor into into this stuff. Um, specifically for mainstream audiences, because most, most mainstream audiences aren't huge fans of accessibility. It seems boring and dry. So, if I can make it fun for them, then, then I will. Um, <clears throat> so, super happy to be doing this one. This is a topic that is actually very, very interesting to me. In particular, I've been doing this stuff for a really long time. Um, uh, So, for those who don't know me, um, you know, my name is Carl Groves. Amber has already done a really good introduction. But I've been doing accessibility consulting uh, for about 20 years now. And there's always this question from customers like, can you give us a grade? You know, and, and really, the true answer is, well, if you have accessibility problems, then you fail. Um, that's not a message that most people want to hear. <laughs> um, most people want to hear you know, that they're doing, well, they don't want bad news. Most people just don't want bad news. Um, and, and Unfortunately, when it comes to web accessibility consulting, the news is mostly bad. If somebody is new to accessibility, then it's always going to be bad because people just don't think about it up front, and it's always just going to be a bad time. This question, in terms of can we get a can we get a grade, can we get an accessibility score? Uh, this this topic was raised uh, in my mind after several customers asked me if Tenon can give a grade. Um, Tenon philosophically is a product that's its sole job is to find problems, not to give a grade. So that's one thing that was sort of, you know, something that I had to mention to people, which was, you know, it is a diagnostic tool. It's not a program management tool. There's other tools out there, you know, um, level access, for instance, has a product called AMP. AMP literally stands for accessibility management platform. So it is a, a, you know, more all encompassing sort of performance enterprise uh, 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 performance and, and governance type of platform. We have a new product called 11. Uh, 11 is, is again a much more enterprisey kind of, of tool. And that has capabilities for scoring and things like that. but, um, but part of me, you know when, when it came to Tenon and, and, it, and, and, and its philosophy on finding problems, really also this question about getting a grade uh, is perplexing in a lot of ways because what is a grade going to be based on? Um, Like I said, some of my background images have, uh, have, have meaning behind them. This background image is a picture of a person assembling an engine a uh, car engine. I, I mentioned to to Amber before we started that I'm a, I'm kind of a gearhead. As a matter of fact, if, once I retire, I'm starting a hot rod shop. Um, but this is uh, there's a tool placed on top of the engine block. Um, it's a metal bar bolted to the block, and its job is to find what's called top dead center. Top dead center is especially top dead center on cylinder one is how you know how to time the engine's ignition and. and all this other stuff so what are we going to base our grade on um that's question number one getting a grade for something a grade is really actually kind of simple you divide the past things past as in the things that have uh, that are good by the total things multiply that quotient by 100 then apply your standard north american grading scale to it A is 90 to 100, B is 80 to 89, C is 70 to 79, so on and so forth. So uh, if you subject your website to 20 accessibility tests and you pass 15 of those tests, you get a 75, which is a C grade and you're done. And that is actually the answer to how to score something for accessibility, at least when it comes to an automatic testing tool. Depending on your manual methodology, this idea works there too. Um, there's a number of flaws with most manual testing methodologies that I'll talk about as we go through this. Um, so that's, that's really my answer. Like if you're not going to listen to anything else, if you were, if you're like, you know, uh, you just want the answer to how to get a grade, it's past items, total items, divide those, you're done. There's a lot of things other people talk about when they talk about grading. Um, and so you, you hear people when they're talking about this concept of, of pr- applying a grade. There's, there's people who have other things that they want to think about when they talk about the grade. Uh, one of those things could be uh, relevance, right? Um, background image here is, is a protest poster. Uh, someone's carrying and the words on the protest poster says, I can be persuaded by a logical argument. Um, okay, so... Thinking about relevance actually is is an interesting one. Most, if not all, automatic testing tools are unable to give a reliable score um, because they don't track anything but failures. And this, this goes back to the Tenon philosophy, but it's also true for almost all other tools out there. If you think about it, they're not telling you what is good. They're telling you what is bad. They're telling you they've found an issue. They found a problem. And so there is no concept of relevance in terms of performance. They have no, there's no concept of passing other than by virtue of not failing. And you see this a lot um, when people are talking about accessibility. They're saying, um, I want a clean score from Wave or a clean score from Axe or whatever. You know, we got no issues. Just because an automatic testing tool didn't find any issues doesn't mean that you haven't Gotten any issues. What it means is that you've got no failures from the things that that thing tests. And so a past condition is created by either not failing the existing tests or the tests not being relevant. Um, and this is actually why Tenant doesn't give a grade. It's because it doesn't track what tests are relevant or passed, it just text tests failures. Uh, so while there is a, there is a value in getting a score based on the extent or lack thereof of accessibility errors it lacks that context. Getting a really useful score requires knowing, you know, a couple of things. First off, um, of the tests that were relevant, which ones passed and which ones failed? So you have to, tr- you really actually have to keep track of what tests were relevant in the first place. Again, to maybe simplify this let's say we're talking about a testing tool that has tests for tables you have no tables um and then therefore you you those tests are not relevant you can neither pass nor fail those things um and this is this is actually something that's a that's a that i've had conversations with with customers that say well an irrelevant thing is a pass because it didn't fail (laughs) and i'm like no that's really spurious logic and an irrelevant thing can neither pass nor fail because it doesn't meet the criteria to do either thing. To use a computer programming analogy, I think an irrelevant test is something that's null. So for anybody who's program, done any programming, JavaScript, PHP, whatever, um, an irrelevant thing is null because it can neither be true or false, right? And that's what I think, and that's, that's how I think about this. We actually built this capability into Mortis.io, which is our which is ten, uh, the tenant company's manual testing tool. Um, each test has specific criteria and those criteria determine if that test is even applicable in the first place. It provides specific instructions for, for testing, uh, whether it's applicable and whether it's passed or failed. And I believe, at least in terms of scoring, this relevance part is pretty important. And it's uh, and it's important to, to, to have that knowledge before we even think about any grading scheme. Um, this is one of my favorite accessibility fail pictures. Uh, it is a picture, uh, unfortunately, highly pixelated at this resolution, but uh, there's a set of stairs. There's a ramp on it, um, it's going at, at least a 45 degree angle, very high. Um, Clearly not a viable ramp. Probably really fun to go down. uh, Well, until you get to the bottom, impossible to get up. Anyway, the text on the slide says, what about user impact? So this this is actually an interesting one. The argument made for factoring in user impact is basically this, that a raw pass versus fail score is fine, if everything that we're testing for has the same impact, but we know, and, and all of us who've done accessibility for any length of time knows, accessibility is different, right? Some things have very different levels of impact for, very, for, for different users. And this is extremely hard to do with automation. Um, a lot of people know me for, for a lot of my content out there on overlays. And as I often say, in the context of overlays, it's easy to find images that have no text alternatives, right? Very easy to find. You can use the, there's an algorithm on W3C website about accessible name calculation. You can program something to find the accessible name of something following that algorithm very easily. Uh, And so that's really easy. And that's a Boolean sort of pass field kind of thing. It's really hard to determine whether a text alternative is accurate and informative. Um, as a matter of fact, I served as an expert witness on a legal case called Murphy versus IBOBS. Um, one of the big things about Murphy versus IBOBS is that the defendant in the case, which is IBOBS, their lawyer was trying to argue that we view, we use accessibility, and because we use accessibility, we are compliant. And what we found in our research on AccessiBe's capabilities is that it uses um I don't know what library or what system it uses for its for its uh, image recognition, but it uses some sort of image recognition software that was often wrong. Um, so when we were talking about, you know, looking through the machine generated uh, art- uh, text alternatives that were provided, a lot of them were completely wrong. Sometimes they got the content of the image, right, but not the context. Um, so, Uh, So we know it's really, really, really hard to determine whether text alternative, uh, if if it's applied, is is correct in the first place. But then there's this whole issue of if the text alternative is wrong, how wrong is it, right? If we're using this or if we're gauging our score based on user impact, um, how bad is it that it's wrong? Right. So, in, in, for instance, if, uh, if, if it's a picture of a product and they describe the product, but they get, I don't know, the color of the product wrong, how big of a deal is that versus how, uh, versus whether the text alternative is, is wrong enough that, it, that the user is missing important information, it's not conveyed any other way on the page and so on and so forth. That's a different story, right? Um, in one case, we're talking about nuisance. And in another case, we're talking about complete failure of a, of a core system task. Another thing is that some issues impact multiple user types, and those impacts may, may vary. So, a missing uh, missing label on a form field uh, or missing programmatic association for that label uh, could cause impact. Uh, could cause an impact for uh, a person on voice dictation software, but they could use the mouse grid something like that and a person who's blind could screw it up completely so we have a high impact for one population a medium to low impact for another population how does that weigh in for for us with 10 and mortis what we do is we actually factor some of that stuff in into the prioritization scoring uh the prioritization scoring that we use has a number of factors that that contribute to the prioritization score um, and that's really sort of, uh, and sort of this severity of impact is, is combined into the, into the prioritization, not the actual score, so to speak. And priority is simply an, a measure of urgency that you really want to fix the issue. In other words, you fail and it's kind of how badly are you failing? Um, that being said, I, I kind of remain open to the idea that, um, that severity should be its own metric, but I don't still don't know how to apply that to an accessibility grade. That, that kind of brings its own set of challenges. Uh, what about volume? So the picture here is actually a picture of a tulip field in uh, the Netherlands. I'm assuming millions upon millions of red tulips are in this picture. Okay. Uh, so the text on the slide here says, wait, what about volume? Um, so at its most basic, the more issues a system has, the lower its quality. Um, And this is not unique to web, and it's not unique to web accessibility. This is actually a metric that's uh, pretty well tracked uh, uh, traditionally in software um, QA before the web even existed. Uh, But basically in the context of accessibility, the more accessibility issues a a system has, the higher the the number of the accessibility issues the lower its accessibility grade should be, right? It's a lower quality system. Um, so raw issue count, the, the difference here is on the web, raw issue count isn't really useful without additional context, right? And so this is where the uh, concept called defect density comes in. Um, it takes into consideration the number of issues in, in the uh, number, number of issues in the code versus the size of the page. Um, And so Tenon was actually the first accessibility testing tool to provide this metric. Um, But I didn't come up with it myself. This is, again, it's been traditional QA thing for a long time. In traditional QA, it's defect, that defect density is a number of issues per 1000 lines of code. They call it KLOC uh, number of issues uh, per kilobyte of code because websites have many uh, blank lines and a lot of white space. What Tenon does is it collapses all the white space and uses that as kilobyte of source code comparison. And so the logic for defect density is pretty straightforward, right? A simple web page with a lot of issues is worse than a complex web page with the same number of issues. So when I talk about this with customers, what I say is imagine that you test uh, the Google homepage, right? Google homepage has like a logo, search form button on the top and bottom corners there's other links settings menus and stuff like that but feature wise super super simple page um we test that we get a hundred issues and then we take the msnbc.com web page and we get a hundred issues msnbc.com obviously is much more complex um and lots, lots more content, lots more code, of course. So 100 issues on Google, 100 issues on MSNBC. If we just count raw issue count, of course, that's um, they're going to seem the same. They're going to seem equal. But we know for a fact that that's not the case. If there's 100 issues on the Google homepage, that means very simply that it's a worse page. It's a much more simple page. And in practice, what we've seen uh, is a strong correlation between density and usability. Uh, pages that exceed 50% density on tenen are found to be more difficult for users to deal with in the real world. So as density increases, uh, the likelihood that users are going to be completely unable to, to use the content and features on that page. Um, and at, at this, in my opinion, actually begs uh, the question as to whether density is really the actual true metric that we should measure a grade. Um,
3: this episode of Accessibility Craft is sponsored by... Equalize Digital Accessibility Checker, the WordPress plugin that helps you find accessibility problems before you hit publish. A WordPress-native tool, Accessibility Checker provides reports directly on the post-edit screen. Reports are comprehensive enough for an accessibility professional or developer, but easy enough for a content creator to understand. Accessibility Checker is an ideal tool to audit existing WordPress websites, find accessibility problems during new builds, or monitor accessibility and remind content creators of accessibility best practices on an ongoing basis. Scans run on your server, so there are no per-page fees or external API connections. GDPR and privacy compliance real-time accessibility scanning. Scan unlimited posts and pages with Accessibility Checker free. Upgrade to a paid version of Accessibility Checker to scan custom post types and password-protected sites. View site-wide open issue reports and more. Download Accessibility Checker free today at equalizedigital.com forward slash accessibility checker. Use coupon code Accessibility Craft to save 10% on any paid plan.
2: A picture on the background of this slide is uh, apparently a stuntman who is on a dirt bike riding through or has ridden through something on fire and he himself is also on fire. The text on the slide says, wait, what about comparing it's the norm? We hear a lot of that uh, in the accessibility consulting field from, from people who are like, well, how do we compare to our peers? Uh, we hear I've, I've heard that a ton from e-retailers for sure. Um, uh, you know, one, one retailer would be like, how do we compare against, and they would name their, their direct competitors or at least who, who they see as a competitor. And at this point, uh, the Tenant product has assessed millions of pages on the web and log tens of millions of issues across those pages. And so this is actually more than enough data for us to calculate any data point that we want with a statistically significant sample size, a confidence level of 99% and a confidence interval of one. What I'm saying there is is that we we can gather any statistics that we want and it will be an accurate comparison against the web as a whole. And so, one way to do that, to do this, this comparison thing, is to provide a grade based on the norm. In other words, a comparison against all the other pages that have ever been tested. A common example uh, of this could be basically considered like grading on a curve in college. Unfortunately, the normal web page is really bad, <laughs> so. The average number of errors uh, across the web is 83 errors per page. A n is a little bit unique in the way it does its testing. We test, we, we count individual instances of issues. And so let's say we have a table that has 10 columns and none of those 10 columns has a scope attribute on them. We would log 10 issues. Other tools might log one issue and say this table is messed up. So. Average number of errors per page, 83. The average uh, density is 15%. And so what this means is this average density of 15% suggests that most pages on the web are kind of crappy. So when it comes to grading for accessibility, it doesn't really seem useful to base a grade on a norm when the norm itself is just not accessible. Uh, so what about scope? Uh, This image doesn't mean anything. Uh, What about scope? So there's several layers to consider in a scoring scenario in terms of the scope of the thing we're measuring. Um, And so uh, we'll we'll talk about three different layers. Uh, The component, that's the individual feature of a page or an application screen, such as as its uh, navigation There's the page, that's going to be the entire page or application screen and all of its individual components. Uh, You can also call this a view. And then there's the product, and that's the entire collection of pages or screens that make up the product. So getting a grade on a component is, is actually really useful, I think. At least determining, determining the urgency with which you need to make repairs. Getting a grade on a page is less useful um, without any specific means to identify the value of the page. In other words, a per page grade is pretty simple, but getting an A grade on an inconsequential page is less useful than getting an A grade on a page that sees the most traffic from users or includes specific features or documentation for people with accessibility concerns. So at the page level, what tends to happen is that the cumulative grade of the product could be impacted either too high or too low by uh, outliers. And that skew the results in one direction or another. So, for instance, a, a great example of this would be pages that are just text, blog posts or documentation or something like that. Let's face it, people do screw that stuff up, but by volume, you're only going to get things like color contrast headings, you know, that sort of stuff out of, out of mostly text pages, where stuff that's in- interactive is going to have a lot more likelihood of having errors anyway. So identifying the relative importance of a page can be useful, but what I've seen or what I feel in practice is that that's actually probably still better left as part of the priority scoring uh, for those issues. In other words, we're gonna deprioritize low traffic, low importance, low interactivity pages from the prioritization and increase the priority for for the other things. So in other words, I don't think scope is relevant Scoping of a page rather is relevant towards a, a, a grade. Probably scoping the uh the uh grades for components is is more useful. Uh this uh background image has three slots for binders. Uh one is one on the left is numbered 403, the number on the right is labeled 405. That means 404 is not found. <laughs> okay, so uh, the text on this slide. No, really. What about ref? What about relevance? I, I want to harp on this one a little bit more, uh, and the reason why is relevance is especially in a term in terms of automatic testing. Um, well, actually, manual also applies here as well. Whether these, no matter how we're running this assessment, the relevance of the grade is directly tied to the completeness and relevance of the test set. Um, so more the, the really simple one in terms of automation is the more tests you have, uh, the more complete your coverage is going to be. Of course, um, as anyone who's involved in automatic testing in general, automatic like unit testing and stuff like that, testing your relevant stuff or testing inconsequential consequential stuff is a problem. You don't want to just sit there and have a pile of completely irrelevant tests, assuming, however, we can have a very large set of relevant tests for our system, the more the merrier, right? So it pays to use a product that has a large number of tests. So if you're using, uh, you know, if you're, for instance, basing your score on something you get out of Lighthouse, um, Lighthouse is good. And the tests within Lighthouse are very good, but there's not a lot of them. Okay, they've chosen to use a subset of the AXE tests, even AXE doesn't have as uh, uh, as many tests as say AMP or 11 or Tenon, so that's an really important thing to mention, but you can close that gap of course, and you can close that gap with manual testing, and again, you have to have a codified set of manual tests, complete instructions uh, steps and and requirements for uh, determining relevance and, uh, uh, you know, relevance, accuracy, and and all that sort of stuff. So you can get a hundred percent coverage reliably if both your automated and your manual testing is, of course, complete. So, uh, our uh, picture here in the background is another uh, gearhead one. This is a person who's assembling an engine. So he's got pistons on the table and a cylinder head. And our text here on the slides is putting it together. So it turns out really in my exploration of this topic that there's there's really two things that are, that are most important with um, creating grade that's relevance and number of tests or really one thing, <laughs> A relevant number or number of relevant tests. That's the most important part. Relevance is really vital. If you have 50 tests to do with forms, but you have no forms on the thing you're testing, then considering those tests into a grade makes no sense and artificially skews your data. The number of vital uh, number of tests is vital because if you don't have a complete and thorough list of tests, uh, then you may not be gathering enough data upon which to base the grade in the first place. And you'll wind up with a score that's not accurate. Um, by the way, you also might remember that I talked about the defect density. Um, I mentioned that defect density itself may suffice as the only necessary metric for grade. But what I found when I when I was looking at tenants' data is that once you start tracking relevant tests and past tests, density is actually actually automatically figured into that. So. Either one of those is a fine metric density or, uh, or the grade itself, because they're both sort of synonymous at this point. The image in the back of, uh, background of this slide has nothing to do with the content, but I've had it sitting in my slide assets archive for a long time and I just had to use it. <clears throat> it's a picture of a stormtrooper and he's holding a sign that says, at least we didn't kiss our sister. Uh, and if you're familiar with Star Trek Lore uh, or uh, Star, Star Trek <laughs> Star Wars, uh, you'll know where that's coming from. If you haven't, then just watch the first first one chronologically uh, or according to release date. All right. And our text says uh, our target must be an A. Regardless of what you base your score on, your target must be an A. So going back to these requests that we've gotten from customers, Like, how do we compare it to our competitor? No, like that's totally the wrong question to ask. Getting a grade that you can look at and immediately know where your system stands is super useful. It's an awesome idea. It's a great way of tracking your progress, provided that, of course, you are tracking your progress. Like, it should be relatively straightforward to get a grade that's useful and then use that as, as a, I don't know, a KPI to say, you know, what's our distance from an A? <clears throat> Accessibility, because it's a compliance domain, it's the kind of thing that large companies wanna track, um, and, and that's fine. But in practice, at least in my history, organizations that, that do this, are they're kind of doing a bottoms up race to whatever their bare minimum acceptable, acceptable grade is gonna be, and then they stop, right? So they'll be, oh, well, a B is good enough. Well, a B is not good enough. Um, the, you know, that's gonna be their target. They're gonna, they're not gonna look any further. And so that's why the desire to pursue a grade really is kind of misleading and dangerous anyway. Um, and so I wanna read from you the WCAG, um, the WCAG, a quote from WCAG standard. And it says, conformance to a standard means that you meet or satisfy the requirements of the standard. That seems pretty self-explanatory. In WCAG, the requirements are the six criteria. To conform to WCAG, you need to satisfy the success criteria, that is, there is no content which violates the success criteria. So the at a glance ability to see a score and intuitively understand how far away you are from getting that grade is cool, but Choosing a, a less than perfect grade as good enough is dangerous, especially when you are working for an organization that has a high risk uh, profile, e-retail, banking, travel, that sort of stuff, or you have, you know, regu- you're subject to regulatory oversight if you're, um, you know, if your organization is of a certain size in Canada or Europe or your federal agency or something like that. Like you have to comply with all of the success criteria at the chosen level of WCAG in order to be considered compliant. A B is not compliant, a C is not compliant. So that's, that's, it's important to keep that in mind that anybody who asks you this question, like what's our grade is if you have any issues, you are non-compliant. And that's really kind of the method that they need to get a grade is good for determining how far away you are from that. Uh, so the background image here uh, is another funny one. It says if this uh, it's a picture in, in a bathroom, uh, part of the, part of the sign is cut off, but it says if there's if this bathroom needs service, please turn on the switch. Um, uh, below that sign is the switch plate that has no switch. <laughs> uh, okay. So the text on this slide says, uh, there's much more, uh, there, there's only one true metric. And this is actually one that I, that I, um, I borrowed from, uh, borrowed from a friend of mine who was doing accessibility compliance at Google. Um, and he mentioned this to me that there's really only one thing that we need to track. There's only one real KPI. And that is, will users with disabilities want to use the product. Um, and, and for this, I'll take us back to another quote from the WCAG standard. It says, although these guidelines cover a wide range of issues, they are not able to address the needs of people with all, the, all types, degrees and combinations of disability. And so the real approach for scoring, it really inc- requires us to interact with the real users. Uh, watch them use the product, ask them one of these three questions. If you're not a current user of our product, would you want to use it? Or if you are a current user of our product, would you continue to use it? And third, if you're a former user of this product, would you come back to using it? So while automated and manual testing is really useful in finding potential problems in your product, only usability testing with real users is gonna tell you if you've gotten it right. And this one true metric is basically, will people with disabilities want to use this product? That's the, that's the way we get our score. So that's me, uh, Carl Groves. You can follow me on Twitter, at Carl Groves, where I mainly talk about overlays and politics. Um, and uh, uh, my... Uh, the website here, levelaccess.com. Uh, my email is carl.groves at levelaccess.com. Uh, are there any questions? I see there's 17 comments in the chat that I haven't read. So let's let's take a look at some of these and see if there's anything.
1: Uh, there were a couple of um, comments about, let's see. Let me scroll back through about um, measuring against, which I think you might've touched on, but just in case, you know, measuring against that, that base of other sites, most of which, most of which have problems. Uh, So I don't know if you have any extra thoughts on that, but.
2: Yeah, it's really bad. I mean, the, the reality is there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of bad websites out there and, Especially in certain industries or certain market segments, a, a lot of those can be horrible. Um, unfortunately, you know, K twelve is a really is a big area where things are just horrible for for people with disabilities to even try to use. Um, so you know, you can you can kind of guess that the larger the company, the more likely it is that they'll have done something for accessibility. Um, but uh, but just in general, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't use what the what other people do as a good example or a good good thing to follow.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So M had a comment. You can get a one hundred percent accessibility score from certain auto test tools, even though the site is not accessible, or you use workarounds to trick the tools. Yeah. I I think a good follow on question like that is: Are there common tools that people use that, and I know like I'm not asking you to bash on anything, but things that you're like, you know, you wouldn't recommend or obviously your product is a great product, but are there other things that can be helpful in finding some of the obvious problems, um, but that won't create a misleading view of what the accessibility status of the product is or the website?
2: Uh, Well, first off, I would say that, um, I would say that any testing tool is good uh, as a way to get started because you're testing. You know what I mean? Like, I got to say that there are tools out there. Um, There's certain legacy tools that I've seen people use that are really old and sort of out of date and things like that. Um, I'm not going to mention their names because I don't want to disparage anybody. But I would say that, you know, I I mentioned before Lighthouse. Uh, Lighthouse uses a subset of the X. Rule set, the tests are good. If you're if you're using Lighthouse uh, and you're doing testing with it, or using Accessibility Insights from Microsoft, which also uses a subset, um, those are good tests. You know what I mean. And if you're finding that if you're finding stuff with those and you're fixing them, you're already doing a good thing. Um, You're not getting a grade because they again they're just a subset. Um, What I would caution is people trusting any tool as gospel. Um, we see this a lot with um, with legal cases. There's actually a law firm in Beverly Hills that's, that fires out these demand letters and they base all of their stuff on WAVE. Now, WAVE is awesome. It's, a, it's, it's the number one downloaded and used accessibility testing tool for a reason, right? But WAVE in the hands of an amateur can be deceiving. You know, you see, because it, what it's gonna list on WAVE is outright errors, color contrast problems, which you do sometimes need to verify, then warnings and also information. The warnings could be completely irrelevant. They could just be wrong, and, and that's fine because they disclose that it's a warning. And then the information ones, that's just for information for you to, to assist you when you're doing your manual tech checking. But a lot of people don't understand that, and they'll take it as gospel. Or <clears throat> even even my tool or others uh, we'll have an accurate test, but there's a conditional thing that makes it irrelevant. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, I used, I used to use this line from, I used to work at a Harley dealership a long, long, long time ago. And there was a mechanic there. We called him old man, Brian, his name was Brian and he, he's old, but, uh, he used to say there, there was this, this younger kid that worked as a mechanic next to him who he had the worst Snap-on habit in the world. Snap-on is a is a tool company. They they'll drive to like you know auto shops or something like that. They sell you tools, and they oh, they have the best tools. They're phenomenal tools. Snap-on is, but this kid ha- always had to have the the latest and greatest stuff. And Brian would say it's a poor mechanic who blames his tools for you know not getting the job done right. And I and I, I carry that over to everything else. Like if you don't understand what the testing tool is doing, then you're going to have problems. You know, like you're going to get misled. You're going to chase your tail. You're going to not. So that's the only thing I would say about, about some of that stuff is, is tool quality is a big deal. Understanding the tool is even bigger.
1: For people that are just getting started, what resources do you have for like learning or trying to better understand the tools and what and creating what their process should be for testing?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um For anyone involved in accessibility or anyone, especially anyone new for accessibility, go to the WebAIM website, Uh, webaim.org. You know, they were instrumental in both their website and their discussion lists were instrumental for me when I was beginning, uh, starting out. And I still point point people there. Huge shout out to the folks at WebAIM. Um, I love them all dearly. Uh, Small plug. Uh, Level Access has released Access Academy. <clears throat> Access Academy is um, awesome. Got some free courses, and it, it talks about everything from strategy to developer stuff.
1: Awesome. Um, let's see. I I don't see too many more questions coming in, so feel free, anyone, if you have questions, put them in. But I have one or two others that I sort of thought of while Carl was talking. Otherwise, we might wrap a little early. But um, so. One thing I was wondering, because you mentioned that there are some law firms that just use the testing tools, Um, is there? do you feel like there is a good response to that if someone has a client that gets a demand letter? I mean, obviously, the ideal response, of course, is make the website accessible or do user testing and prove that it already is and that that was a false flag on WAVE or whatever that might be. Um, But do you have any thoughts on that? having been involved in some of the lawsuits as an expert?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really, <clears throat> it's kind of a, it's a huge topic because there are trolls out there who, um, you know, they'll go away for $4,000. Right. And some of them, not all of them, a lot, a lot of them want, want, want real money, but there's some of these folks who are just, they'll, they'll, they'll just settle for like four grand. They'll, they'll go away. And you got to ask yourself, like, my lawyer, at least, when, uh, before we got acquired by Level Access, my lawyer was $500 an hour. So, you know, we're, we're not talking a lot of time before that $4,000 is run out when, with, with me paying my lawyer to fight this thing. The other reality is <clears throat> um, they probably have a good complaint, right? So... If, if you have uh, if you have a website and somebody reaches out to you and says we're going to sue you, unless you know for a fact your website is is accessible, they might have a point, and that's a huge that's actually a huge problem. It makes it really hard to defend. Um, obviously, the bigger your company, the more money you have to fight this sort of stuff. And there you go. But um, you know, there's uh, there's something to be said for just fixing your stuff. As a matter of fact. When it comes to when it when it comes to a legitimate complaint, all paths lead to you fixing your stuff. If you follow the possible options, we actually have a flowchart. There's a blog post on the on Tenon website, blog.tenon.io. And I forget what the blog post is titled, but um, but we have a flowchart and it says basically all paths lead to fixing your stuff. Either you if you fight the if you fight the lawsuit and you win, the only way you're winning is because you already have an accessible site. If you settle, you have to fix your site. If you lose, you have to fix your site. So there's only one way to deal with lawsuits, and that's to fix your site. (coughs) Um, So that's the one thing I would say. The other part, just strategically, is that some lawsuits can be mooted. mooted. Mooting in legal terms is a strategy where you basically pull the rug out from underneath the plaintiff by making it no longer an issue. So fixing your site before the trial date and then you have the trial you have the lawsuit thrown out and so on and so forth that's uh, that's legal stuff that I can't get into any more than that other than knowing that I have seen it happen and participated in it happening happening but there's lots of legal mumbo jumbo behind that that I can't I'm underqualified for.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I appreciate the thoughts. And, and I mean, obviously that would be the most ideal response, right? Is you get a complaint and you just go fix it. And you say, oh, thanks for letting us know. Here's <laughs> yeah. the fix on our website. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so uh, someone said um, they're trying to learn web development. I find myself paralyzed because I'm terrified of learning inaccessible, inaccessible practices because accessibility is usually treated as an afterthought. Can you recommend any uh, courses, I think they're referencing on web development that account for accessibility throughout?
2: Man, you know, I wish there was a a good answer for that. Um...
1: So I, I know Joe Dolson does some LinkedIn learning stuff. I don't know if he has, I know he has one on accessibility I'm not certain if he has any without going and looking if he has just web development courses, but I would guess if he does on LinkedIn Learning, that might be a good resource.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's a couple of LinkedIn Learning courses um, that are out there that have done that that have covered some of that. Joe Dolson, I think Marcy Sutton has some stuff out there um Gerard Cohen I think he did one on on lynda.com or something like that um I just put a link to an Amazon uh purchase for a book called designing with progressive progressive enhancement um that the book is a little bit on the out-of-date side when it comes to like modern practices however if you're just learning web development this this is going to cover a lot of really good stuff um That'll be, that'll be a big deal because it'll talk about JavaScript. It has, you know, it's HTML, CSS, CSS3 stuff. So it, it's, it's semi-modern, but um, a lot of the JavaScript in there is, is jQuery rather than, you know, more modern framework stuff. But that, that will teach a lot of the fundamentals for that stuff. And also, again, again this is another one that's really out of date. Beginning... Java script with DOM scripting. Uh, a little, little good friend of mine. Uh, Christian Heilman wrote this book.. Uh,
0: uh,
1: uh. I think while you're looking for that, Glenn commented in the chat um, that if you start with semantic HTML, that's a great start for accessible practices. So maybe don't skip those HTML basics courses. Yeah. And yeah, Christine... what
2: well, the, the, the unfortunate part is not a lot of those resources out there talk about semantic HTML. Like they don't they don't show you like none of the websites that are out there, like tutorial websites, even care about semantic HTML for the most part. Um so yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Christina commented that you <coughs> know college in Toronto's web development bootcamp program integrates accessibility. Uh, she That's attended cool. that on a scholarship and there was accessibility there. That's cool. Yeah. Here's a, a question that my, that is very current. So how does accessibility fit into Metaverse and Web 3 and future emerging technologies like virtual reality, AR, VR, MR, I'm not, I don't even, I know what, like AR, I know VR, I don't know MR. What is the scope of accessibility in these areas? Do you have thoughts on this? Yeah,
2: that's So Glenn Walker can answer that one, which is uh, Thomas Logan. uh, Thomas Logan is, is probably the the first resource I would point anybody to for, for AR and VR stuff. Um, So, yeah.
1: And that's uh, Glenn posted in the chat, just in case anyone can't see it, Thomas Logan of the A11Y NYC meetup. Yeah. Do you know if those are virtual meetups? Yes. Yeah, so anyone can join, great. Uh, There was a comment or a question later on Um, Or earlier back that said, one thing I've considered is using a VPAT template for developing an accessibility score. So removing the non-relevant items and creating a score per accessibility level. For example, level A only has 10 relevant items, divide that by 100 or so on for each level. Does this seem problematic? And the person said, keeping in mind, this is for clients who just really want to have a score.
2: Yeah, I don't really agree with the idea of using VPAT for that. VPad is great for disclosing where your failings are, um, at a at a success criteria by success criteria um, uh, way. I, I I agree with that. Um, but as far as like, do we have an A or a B? No.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, you actually helped me when we were working on one for ours and I was looking out at some of them and I feel like there were a lot of what you were talking about earlier where they just said, oh, it passes, even though it's, it didn't actually apply. And so I was going back and forth. And I appreciated your thoughts on that as we were writing ours. So I was like, well, I mean, does it pass? <laughs> we don't have I... this. Like there's no images of text. So I guess we passed yeah. images. Of- <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I I have a I'm not gonna name them, but there's a very, very large software company out there who says if the criteria is irrelevant and it's very then it passes. And I'm like, no, it's just not relevant. Like, and but their their logic for saying that is because they haven't failed. And I'm like, that's that's not the same.
1: <laughs> it's not the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not seeing any other questions coming up. Um, M said, agree that we should move away from scores and just fix what is wrong or build it right at the start. The point should be to create an inclusive and welcoming site for everyone. I think so. The last question that I wrote down was when you were talking about user testing and um, the way we sort of have approached this is we try to do automated testing and then we have our developers do manual testing themselves. And then after all those things are fixed, we bring in users. And, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts about like how people can incorporate users in their testing process, should it be earlier, um, or, and, and also maybe for someone who's new to that, how would they go about finding users?
2: Yeah. Um, So I would suggest strongly never to do usability testing until you've done automated and manual testing. Um, The reason why is because you don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste your participants' time. And if there's money involved, like paying stipends, which you should be doing, um, then you're wasting money. Um, so, So I would strongly recommend not doing user testing until you've gotten that other stuff out of the way. Because, and I've seen this plenty of times, you're going to have a person failing a task for an extraordinarily obvious reason, right? So I'll give you a great example. I was once testing a jobs website and this was a jobs site where, you know, you have to, in order to post your resume, you have to have an account. And in order to to apply for a job, you have to have a resume, so on and so forth. So, um, So if you're testing this whole, uh, you know, ability to upload a resume, but the fields don't have labels, or there's like a stupid focus problem, or something like that. Then you're not really testing the usability of this process. You, you're you're getting you're getting uh, bogged down in technical problems that should have been addressed in the first place. But once you've done that, um, the, uh, the the next part would be usability testing. Um, now, there's a ton of ways to do it right, and there's a ton of ways to do it effectively <laughs> that aren't, like, ideal, right? The ideal is, of course, you, you do a recruit, uh, you have a, a defined persona, you recruit against that persona, blah, 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 That stuff can get really, really expensive. If you don't have the budget for that, you can grab some people who at least have some domain knowledge in the area of this website uh, and recruit them to, to do the testing. Lots of places will. Um, lots of places are out there to uh, uh, finding participants in this, um, and you know NFB, uh, local lighthouses, or any of the other uh, AF, AFB, uh, NFB, and ACB, any of those sort of things. You can reach out to them to see if there are any people who who would be willing to participate. That should have you covered for um, for non-visual testers uh, and the same thing goes for, you know, for, for any other sort of, um, you know, uh, population. There's plenty of disability rights organizations or, or advocacy organizations that have lists of, you know, people who might want to participate or might be available to participate or they'll share your announcement uh, or your call for participants. Um, and like M said, you know, just make sure you pay them. <laughs> a Give them a stipend of some kind. Uh, the going rate for stipends is about 75 to 150 bucks uh, and it's well worth it. Once you, once you've done that testing, if you're, if you're ready for it, um, by the way, um, going back to the question about the VPAT, another thing that I was, that I thought that I should have mentioned before is there's a new organization that's out there um, that is creating a, uh, cr- trying to create an accessibility reports kind of standard uh, that's kind of like well, what they say here in the introduction, a window sticker, uh, similar to a car window sticker for telling people what your performance is for accessibility. So if this is a topic you're interested in and have time for, uh, definitely get in touch with Chris Law and, and uh, try to get Try to participate in that and give your feedback in that because that's uh, that is one area of trying to you know boil all of this stuff I've been talking about down into something actually digestible for consumers.
1: Is that a uh, like a self-proclaimed or like they're going to come and be an external like credentialing body that people can opt into? Or do you know much about what they're looking at going to for that window sticker?
2: I don't know, actually. Um, I, I guess that sort of has yet to evolve. Um, step one, of course, was getting people involved in the organization and setting it up, and then I guess there's more to go from that. And I have been only uh, involved in the very, very early days, and with the acquisition of, of uh, tenant from Level Access, that's that took up uh, pretty much most of my time throughout the last end of the uh from fall and summer or fall to winter and, and into spring this year that's kind of been all I've been able to work on. <clears throat>
1: awesome. Well, thank you very much. This has been fabulous. Uh, do also everyone please check out the uh, WordPress accessibility day website. It's wpaccessibility.day, which is a URL <laughs> uh, so. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great rest of the day.
0: Thanks for listening to Accessibility Craft. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in your podcast app to get notified when future episodes release. You can find Accessibility Craft on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And if building accessibility awareness is important to you, please consider rating Accessibility Craft five stars on Apple Podcasts. Accessibility Craft is produced by Equalize Digital and hosted by Amber Hines, Chris Hines, and Steve Jones. Steve Jones composed our theme music. Learn how we help make thousands of WordPress websites more accessible at equalizeddigital.com.